Welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. We're glad you could join us today. The series Living Proof examines social work research and practice that makes a difference in people's lives. The University at Buffalo School of Social Work is making a difference every day. Through the generation and transmission of knowledge, promotion of social justice, and service to humanity. We offer MSW and PhD programs, continuing education programs and credits, online courses, licensure exam preparation, professional seminars and certificates, and much, much more. To learn more about the UB School of Social Work, please visit www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. Hi from Buffalo. No, not the home of two feet of snow on Christmas Day. That's Manhattan. I'm your host, Peter Sabota. In 2003, with national attention swirling around the case, Dr. Jay Wolfson was appointed by the courts and governor of Florida as guardian ad litem for Terry Schiavo, whose husband and parents were in a standoff about her care and end-of-life decision-making. He was charged with preparing a report using his expertise to provide summaries and recommendations. In this episode, Dr. Wolfson discusses his experience in the Shivos case and the political, clinical, and legal issues he was forced to contend with. He speaks about the powerful influence of hope in this process and its strength and threat to those making decisions. Common sense, compassion, and dedication are all along for this ride. Dr. Wolfson discusses the complex variables involved for all players in this drama, including the loved ones and families, and the professionals who will interact, diagnose, treat, advocate, counsel, and interpret and apply the law. He concludes with recommendations for clinicians and other professionals in assisting others with end-of-life decision-making. Jay Wolfson is the Distinguished Service Professor of Public Health and Medicine and the Associate Vice President for Health Law, Policy, and Safety at the University of South Florida in Tampa. He directs the Suncoast Center for Patient Safety at USF and is co-director of the Consortium for Law and Medicine for USF and Stetson College of Law. He holds a doctorate in public health from the University of Texas, a law degree from Stetson, a master's degree in public health from Indiana University, a master's degree in history from NYU, and a bachelor's degree in history from the University of Illinois. Dr. Wolfson was interviewed by Dr. Deborah Waldrop, Associate Professor of Social Work here at UB. I'm Jay Wolfson and I'm a professor of public health and medicine at the University of South Florida and professor of law at Stetson University College of Law. Earlier this century, I was appointed to serve as the special guardian ad litem uh, for Teresa Marie Schiavo, uh, known best as Terry Schiavo, who had for many years been in what was diagnosed as a persistent vegetative state and at a point many years after that diagnosis efforts were made by her husband to permit her to die by the removal of the nutrition and hydration tube that had been inserted in her for many years and this became uh, an issue of national significance when uh, the governor of the state of Florida and the state legislature and President Bush and the United States Congress became involved. Guardian ad litem is a 
a position that I believe every state in this country has as part of its statutory provisions of law that has the responsibility of representing the interests of persons who may be incapacitated. There are guardian ad litem programs that are run by state agencies as well as some that are run by not-for-profit community organizations representing the special interests of children or adults uh, or abused women. When there's a party in uh, an action that the state has determined is legally incapacitated and they do not have their own representation. And there are other parties, such as family members, who are disputing issues associated with that person's rights, or if the state itself has a concern about the exercise of that person's rights, then a guardian ad litem may be appointed by the courts. In my case, there was a special law that was passed by the Florida legislature. It became known as Terry's Law. And the law contained two provisions. One, it permitted the governor of the state of Florida to, in this particular case, make a determination as to whether or not the hydration and feeding tube, which had already been removed from Ms. Shivo, subsequent to a court order, should be replaced. And it also required the appointment of a special guardian ad litem by the courts and the governor's office to review and assess the entire medical and legal history of the case and report to both the governor and the courts with respect to recommendations on swallowing tests and other clinical and legal questions that are embedded in the law. So it's a special guardian appointment. And it was based on that law that I received a phone call unexpectedly from the governor's office asking me if I might be interested in serving as guardian. I should say that I don't watch much television and I tend not to read local newspapers when I met with then Governor Bush, but I really didn't know much about the case. Mm -hmm. And it turned out to be a very complicated, difficult case. There was a great deal of contention between Ms. Shibo's parents, the Schindlers, and Ms. Shibo's husband, Michael Shibo. Could you just tell us a little bit about the process that you went through in the beginning to really get the whole picture? I met with the parties first. Uh, after having read some of the basic legal complaints in the case, those demands by the parents that she be allowed to remain on the nutrition and feeding tube, those documents that were issued by the husband's attorneys requesting that she be permitted to be relieved of that burden and allowed to die naturally. And at the outset, I didn't go into any of the, the, the court documents. And then I met with the family. I met first with Mr. Shivo and his attorney. Just to get to know them, the court had ordered my participation, and I thought it wise to speak with the parties. They were they had some trepidations at first, but I think we overcame those with relative speed. Mr. Shivo's attorney was concerned that I was representing the interests of the governor. The Schindlers were concerned that I was representing the interest of the ACLU or some other group, or that I was some liberal professor who was out there to do what liberal professors tend to do. And I think I disabused all of them of that up front, that I was an objective third party, and my interests were, to the best of my knowledge, to represent uh, Ms. Shivo, and to do so by 
gaining as much of an objective understanding of the facts in the case as possible. And from the beginning all the way through the end, I predicated everything I did on good science, good medicine, and good law. It also sounds like you had to build trust with the family. That was the most important mm-hmm. thing. You're right. Mm-hmm. And that took a while. It took several meetings of sitting down and talking and sharing who I was, what I believe in, what I know and what I don't know, and convincing them that I didn't have an alternative or ulterior motive. And only after that was established could I have more frank discussions with them about who this woman was and what they could help me learn about her because she couldn't talk to me. And she did not have a living will or a surrogacy document. There were only third-party expressions of what she had said and what her intentions were. And those were in dispute. Florida law is different from many other states, and it does provide for a third party in the guise of a, of a husband as a, as a legal guardian, or when all else fails, the court to step in and act as the interpreter of the intentions based on the totality of knowledge. I think it's fair to say that I established a trusting and highly interactive relationship with both sides and their attorneys. And without that, it would have been extremely difficult. Uh, I relied extensively on the discussions we had, the facts they shared with me, the portraits, the many portraits they painted of this young woman and their relationships with her, they could help me better understand about the way she lived, the things she did, so that I could fit those into a decision model. I wasn't charged with making a decision. I was simply charged with reviewing the facts and proffering um, proffering summaries and recommendations concerning some technical, legal, and clinical things to the judges and to the governor. But the context was important because we're dealing more than with just technical facts. If it's just a matter of, of saying if the technical facts are A, B, and Z, and your options on those are X and Y, you plug those into a formula and you come out. Well, a computer can do that. And you don't need judges, lawyers, physicians, social workers, psychologists, guardians ad litem, or even family members for that matter. Simply plug the data in or have a computer plug it in and you have decisions being made. And that's fortunately not the case. The unfortunate part of this was that early on in the process, there had been no mediated effort to bring in social workers, end-of-life discussions. That was avoided. And it was kind of before in some respects that became more common in hospitals to have uh, committees coming together of ethicists, clinicians, attorneys, administrators, uh, lay people on a case-by-case basis to review particular cases and then to be able to communicate more effectively with the family members and say, here's where we stand. It also doesn't take into consideration the politics and personalities of what happens when a case goes public. That changes everything. It changes everything because then the motivations of some of the parties change. Uh, And if you can avoid that, it probably keeps things as it should be. Fred Thompson, who ran for president, who I guess was also a a character in in some television show, and is known for his very conservative principles, weighed in on this in a very interesting way. His son... I believe was a victim of an automobile accident and was in a persistent vegetative state. And he had to make a decision. And he made the decision to remove the feeding tube. So when Governor Thompson was asked about this, shortly after Senator Frist, on the floor of the United States Senate, made 
remarkable comments about a three-minute video that he'd seen saying that, you know, I'm a physician and I've seen this video and I will tell you that she is aware and interactive. That was unfortunate because it created all kinds of unnecessary expectations, inappropriate expectations, misleading expectations, false, unscientific, not medically grounded expectations in the minds and hearts of the mother and father and family members who were most affected by this. So they were encouraged to continue to believe, in addition to the political possibilities and the economic possibilities, that there was hope. And hope is the single most powerful force that can drive a decision of a family member in an end-of-life issue. Without a doubt. If there's a scintilla of hope, if there's really a scintilla of hope that, that my daughter can get out of this and come back in a reasonable state, I'm going to do that because I love my daughter. But if you're telling me that this is hopeless or that the best we can expect is that she will remain in a semi-conscious state and not really... Is that, is that what my daughter would want? And in your best guess... What do you think Terry Schiavo would have wanted? You yes. reviewed all the tapes. You reviewed all the documents. You heard all the stories. In your mind, what do you think she would have That took a long time to get to a conclusion on. I, I did several things. There were 30,000 pages of legal and medical documents. And I have the, the dubious background of having clinical and legal knowledge and skills. Plus, I had my own health sciences center, my own law school, and skills and knowledge of experts around the world. I, I picked up the phone and made phone calls to people I didn't know and told them who I was and what I was doing, and I didn't get anybody who wasn't fabulously eager to cooperate. I'd sent them portions of medical records, I'd ask for interpretation. They were great, and I reviewed every single page, all 30,000 documents myself, to copious notes. I, I had extensive conversations with neurologists, with psychiatrists, with social workers, with psychologists. I met with representatives of every religious faith. And, and, and denomination and had lengthy conversations um, and there were divisions at this point within the Catholic Church by the way and I spoke with both sides on that and again I spoke with the parents at, at, at considerable length along with ethicists and that was a big part of it and professional responsibility members of each of the professions so there were folks in social work for example who write about professional responsibility and ethics at my university I spoke with them along with physicians who do the same thing lawyers so I tried to, to gather those perceptions, those understandings, as best as I could. And then I spent, at the same time, lots of time with Ms. Shivo in her room, just the two of us. I spent probably between uh, an hour and four hours every day with her. And I did that because I needed to have that personal understanding of what it was she may or may not have been capable of doing. Now, I'm not in a position... To clinically diagnose her, but I'm in a position to be that reasonable person who can sit and attempt to say, is, is there a response here? And I know what the clinical responses are supposed to be, and I can read the clinical records, and I can attempt to interact with her. I can close the door. I would grab her face, and I would shake her. I would play music for her. I would scream at her. I would ask her things, and there was never, in more than a month of interfacing, hundreds of hours, there was never a scintilla of responsiveness that was consistent. And there was a, a cute story, and, and some of your listeners may be old enough to remember this. There was an old cartoon about a guy who is a construction worker, and he's demolishing a building, and he comes to the old cornerstone, and he, he takes out a box, 
and he opens the box, and a frog jumps out. And a frog has a top hat and a cane and sings, Hello, my baby. Hello, my darling. Hello, my ragtime gal. And it's amazing. And he, he all of a sudden, he starts thinking about money. And he takes the frog, and he runs away, and he sets up a thing. He's going to make money displaying the frog. And crowds come, and every time he takes the frog out of the box, it just sits down and says, Ribbit. Ribbit. And then as soon as people leave, he puts on his top hat and dances. The frog ruins his life. His wife leaves him. His children abandon him. He loses his job. He becomes impoverished, and he's, and he, he's disgusted. There's a new building being built on the same site, and he sneaks in in the middle of the night, and he puts it in the new cornerstone and runs away. And then it flashes hundreds of years later as this building is being demolished by aliens. They, they find the box, and the same thing happens again. I had Mr. and Mrs. Schindler, Ms. Schiavo's parents, in the room with me and asked them because they had said that, they, that Terry was responsive to them. And for several hours, Mrs. Schindler, who really was a, is a remarkable, remarkable woman, she desperately tried to recreate in my presence. I stood in the corner of the room, I stood behind the bed, the kind of responsiveness that she said had been displayed over and over again and that had been touted as, couldn't do it. This didn't happen. And at one point, Mr. Schindler, Bob, turned to me and said, Jay, have you ever seen that cartoon? And I was thinking at the same time, the frog. And that for me went to the role of hope it speaks to the essence of belief that something may happen, the yes. hope, the, the corner of hope that was alive for them. And if, and if you're told by a professional, if you're told by a, a board-certified neurologist, a physician, that we can grow her brain back, that we can, we can bring her back, that she'll be sitting up in bed eating a ham sandwich in two years, if you're led to believe that, not by some random person on the street, but by someone who has clinical knowledge, skills, and a license to practice. And if that's reinforced by others who may have other agendas, part of that agenda being, whatever you do, you don't end life. Justice Scalia in the Supreme Court, in an earlier decision, Cruzan, talked about ending life and that we can do nothing. We can do nothing to participate in the ending. If somebody lies down during low tide on the beach with the expectation of committing suicide, we cannot permit them to commit that crime of letting the water come in and drown them. We have a moral, legal obligation to take them away because suicide is a crime. And if you really believe that, that's one thing. There was a great part of this. The day Miss Shivo died, I was in Tallahassee. And I was out in the courtyard of the, the Capitol, and there was what was obviously an Orthodox Jewish rabbi tie and the, the, the hat and the beard and the black coat and he had a big pile of, of clothes next to him and he apparently came down from the north and I curiously walked up and I said uh, Rabbi can, can, I, can I help you? I was with a couple of friends. He said yes, yes yes. I have to speak with the governor immediately I have to meet with the speaker of the house I have to meet with the president of the senate and I said about what? He said I came here to save Terry Schiavo and I said I, help me understand this he said look the scintilla of life creates hope for all life. Now, this is a belief that I, I can accept. And it has, it has real meaning, and I value that. But there were others involved in this process who didn't hold necessarily that belief and who would take 
either political or clinical or religious values and translate them into something else. And when you do that and you impose that on a party, like a parent, who is looking for that hope, is begging for that hope, you're doing a huge disservice. And I think about what, the, what that means for the future. If you've lived with that hope, and then what does that do for bereavement in the end? What does that do for them? It creates long-term? bitterness. Mm-hmm. It creates bitterness in the end, mm-hmm. as opposed to allowing, allowing the bereavement process to act out naturally. And there to be some healing in the family. Yeah. And because of the politics that were involved in cases like this, or in any case where the press is involved, and there's that much contention between parties, mm-hmm. natural healing may never take place while you're going to have a scarring. It's unfortunate. Were you able to see any, reconciliation is not the word, but any coming together at all in the end? Um, oh, no, it became, it became even more toxic in the okay. end, unfortunately. And even today, there is a great deal of toxicity. If we can encourage more people in advance to say, here's what I want to do, even if you change your mind, that's okay. It's, if this is what your intentions are today, memorialize them. And make sure that you pick somebody as your surrogate who agrees with your intentions, who's not going to say, well, I, you know, I know what they wanted, but uh, that's not what I want. No, Max, Max Broad became the, the guardian of Franz Kafka's uh, memoirs, and Franz Kafka told him very specifically, I want all of these burned, and I'm entrusting you to do these after I die. And Max Broad, after he died, said, I ain't going to burn them. <laughs> and he didn't. <laughs> you know, and because of that, we have the interesting experiences of Kafka today. I think it's a particular challenge when there is no prayer articulation, mm-hmm. and that's what the law provides for. Mm-hmm. In many states, there is the reasonableness standard that those who are closest with you, starting from your husband, next going to your children, your parents are last, unless you're a minor. And there's a reason for that. And that's because your parents have hope and expectations that are reasonable, but may not be consistent with yours, if you're an adult. And when there is a clash of interests, as occurred in the Shivo case, between the husband and the parents, the law says the husband shall prevail. Now, you may not like what the law says, and if that's the case, then you have to change the law. You may not like what the medical evidence presents. A persistent vegetative state remains a controversial diagnosis relative to minimal consciousness. And there is actually some, some, new, some new stuff that indicates that there have been some misdiagnoses. In the case of Ms. Shivo, the clinical evidence was overwhelming. Her entire cerebral cortex, the entire cerebral cortex was liquid. Her 80% of the rest of her brain was gone. It was dead. There was no reasonable medical hope of her ever recovering conscious capacity. It wasn't there. So my recommendations were, if you really want to make sure of this, let the parties get together and agree one last time, we will have these tests done by a party not selected by any of the current parties, by no one who's been involved, but all the parties have to agree that the results of those clinical tests will be abided. Mr. Shivo agreed, the Schindlers did not. And the law eventually played out. Judge Greer, who was a a very conservative Republican fundamentalist Baptist was the judge in his case, 
and during the course of these proceedings, he was kicked out of his church and ostracized by his Republican colleagues. And in this case, the one thing that probably saved the integrity of the process was the process itself, the legal process. Now, as, as Governor Thompson said, these are matters that are family matters. The government, the courts should stay out of them. Let families decide this. Let families and physicians make their decisions, which is the way it should be. As soon as you start getting the press, politicians, and even the courts involved, you open yourself up to the toxicity that those naturally create because there are advocates on both sides. And the purpose of those advocates is to stand firm for the positions of, their, uh, of the folks they represent. And in cases like this, nobody wins. And the complexity of it, as you say, and as you describe in the political context, makes it so much more intense and so much more difficult. What do you think the takeaway messages are for people who are in the health professions and learning to be in the health professions? Where does that take us in terms of helping people understand these issues and educating people about them? Great question. I do an awful lot of work in patient safety, and what we've learned is that being honest with people is the most important thing we can do. We're not, if, if we make a mistake saying, I'm sorry, we're not saying, gee, I'm sorry, I screwed up, saying, I'm sorry, this happened to you, let's fix it. In, in the case of, of end-of-life decisions, being as honest and open about the clinical information as possible and doing it early on and in a setting that is comfortable and pragmatic so that there's no misunderstanding. And bringing in those parties, if you're a clinician, if you're a physician and you don't really have the people skills, bring in the social worker who does. If you're an attorney and you're representing a family in an end-of-life decision possibility, and you don't have those skills, bring in the social worker because that's where the skill resides in helping to objectively mediate the facts around that person's life. And it's that person, the person who is the subject of the potential end of life, that this is all about. It's not about the parents. It's not about the husband. It's not about the courts. It's not about the attorney. And it's not about the social worker either. It's about that person. I think the biggest challenge is when you don't really have any concrete information in advance about what that person said they wanted. Then you have to rely upon either the integrity of those involved, the husband, or when that is challenged, then you have to rely upon the process that is in place legally to resolve the dispute. And if you can avoid contention at that point, you're okay. But the, the best way, the old adage, good fences make good neighbors, is early on as you can involve trained individuals who can assist in helping those decision makers understand what the options are and why. In, a, in an environment that is not contentious, that relies on good medicine, good science, good law, and the interests of that individual, not the people who are being asked to facilitate making decisions. Absolutely. And one final question for you. What was the most, perhaps, transforming or meaningful aspect of this case for you as, oh, a, boy. as a person, as a professional? That I, like I, wrote, I wrote my report, and I remember very clearly when Ms. Scheibo died. I got a call um, from, from, the, from the, the facility she was at. And this is someone I, did, I didn't know personally. I was playing an objective almost a bureaucratic role, something I'm not used to doing, 
and I tried so very hard to connect with this human being through other human beings who knew her. It's kind of like trying to connect with the artist by feeling the painting, you know, and, and, and getting a sense of, of, of what the life force is that created this thing. And wondering if I'd done everything that I could or should on her behalf, because that was my job, and if I had left anything undone. But I had a, an event during the middle of this. Uh, I, was, I, I was reading these documents and I was talking with people and it was very intense. I wasn't getting much sleep, didn't have much time. And uh, I woke up at this horrible dream. It was a, it was a, a horrific dream. And I, I shared it with Governor Bush. Uh, I've shared it in some of my writings. Um, I dreamt that I woke up and that I was inside of essentially a coffin, a dark coffin, and that the realization was that there was no escape from this, and that this, this was it, and that there was an abject hopelessness, abject, eternal hopelessness. And I woke up screaming, screaming at the, and, and my son, my, my, my wife was used to my talking in my sleep, my son was all the way, he ran across the house and he said, what's the matter? I said, this is a horrible dream. You know, it was a very subjective experience, but if, if there was the slightest scintilla of any awareness that might have been left in Ms. Shivo, I wondered what it would be like if that's all there was. And if from a Catholic perspective, if she could be allowed to move on to the next stage, naturally. Is that what she would want? And I couldn't do it in terms of what I would want. So I had to project, which is all we do anyway in everything we do. Life is a projection on a good day <laughs> without bad mirrors. But that's a profound story and a profound takeaway message. I think that gives such an insight into what the experience could potentially be. Yeah. These are, not, these are not bureaucratic processes. They're very personal. They are literally matters of life and death that affect the essence of what we are as human beings. And end of life, as, as painful as it is, is part of the process. And if we have a question about the decision and disputes arise or confusions arise, we need to go into this seriously with an open head and an open heart. But we have to do it professionally as well, not technically. There's a difference. Thank you so much for sharing the story with us. It's really powerful. It's really profound. You've been listening to Dr. Jay Wolfson discuss his experiences with the case of Terry Schiavo and the complexities of life-ending decision-making on Living Proof. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, professor and dean at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information about who we are, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. At UB, we are living proof that social work makes a difference in people's lives.